Good morning. My name is Ryan Graydon. Um, my wife and I are members here at Stonebridge Church, and I know a lot of faces out there that are familiar to me, and I'm meeting them, but um, there's still a lot that I don't know, so if you haven't met me, um, I'd sure love to get to know you and, uh, and uh, share this experience of a body of Christ that we have here at Stonebridge Church uh, together. So um, this morning, we are beginning our Advent series here at Stonebridge as we prepare uh, both physically and spiritually for Christmas. And there seems to be much that we all do in preparation for this holiday, and my prayer is this, that we not forget the reason for the holiday. You know, it's easy to be caught up in the culture of Christmas that our world has created, but please don't forget that at this time, some 2,000 years ago, a man and his wife were on their way to Bethlehem to be counted as a part of a census. And shortly after they arrived, our world changed forever. Um, one of the things I truly enjoy in the morning is taking my girls to school. And I, I posed that question to them um, this week. And, uh, and I said, girls, just think about this. On this day, most likely that long ago, Joseph and Mary were on their way to Bethlehem. And then it dawned on me how uncomfortable that trip might have been. Now, I remember my wife being nine, ten months pregnant, almost about to pop, and the swelling and the miserable feeling that she was going through. And here's Mary traveling these many miles, most likely on the back of a donkey, through wilderness and rough terrain, maybe sleeping on the ground at night. It wasn't great at all. But you guys, the the reality was what was happening at Mary and Joseph, through Mary and Joseph, was the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of hope. And we have the benefit of knowing that story. So in preparation for this message this morning, Pastor Matt sent me a link to one of Cornerstone messages from a few years ago that was given by Pastor Andy Norris. And Andy Norris was the high school pastor at Cornerstone. Now he was a church plant pastor down at Cottage Grove, which is on the campus of Drake. And, and that church is growing and, it's, and it's, uh, it's blessing a lot of people. And Andy is, is fervent to preach the truth and, and the gospel and it's changing lives. But in that sermon, Andy reminded the listeners of the definition of Advent. And I thought it would be wise for us to do the same this morning. So when I grew up, Christmas, or building up to Christmas, the four weeks prior to that, we oftentimes had an Advent wreath. Anybody ever have those growing up? And the Advent wreath would sit in the middle of the table, and you'd have four candles on it with one in the middle. Now, why we put candles above wreaths, I, I don't think, I'm not sure that was real smart, but but I remember gathering on Sundays, the four Sundays prior to Christmas, and, and reading an Advent story and lighting the candle with the center candle being Christmas Eve. But I can't tell you honestly that I knew the definition of Advent, the word Advent. And so here it is. The word Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And in Advent, people are to prepare in many ways for the arrival of this event. And in the preparation of the Christmas season of the coming of Christ, our church will be spending the next few weeks in Advent as we lead up to the day of the birth of Christ or what we know as Christmas. 
Now, the purpose is to prepare our hearts and minds for understanding why Christ was born to us and why we should believe in that. If you go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, you'll find the word hope, and that's where we're going to start today. This four-letter word, hope. Now, a dictionary describes it in three different ways, and I want to read you those, those definitions. The first definition in that dictionary is this, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. The second definition is this, to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. And the third, this is my personal favorite, it's just more simple, to expect with confidence, hope, to expect with confidence. Now, all of these definitions, when you think of hope, obviously make sense in the expectation of a Savior and His promise to us, which is our Christian culture. But think of the word hope and the context that we actually use it in most often during our days. In our common talk with those around us, we might hear phrases like this, I hope we win the game tonight, which Iowa State did, by the way, this week. You might also hear somebody say, I hope I get that promotion. Maybe they've worked long at this job. Maybe they're next in line, but the word I hope is used pretty commonly. In my situation, you might hear me say, I hope my wife lets me go hunting. Okay? The word hope has become a word that we use quite often in our everyday talk and chatter. And yet I wonder if it ever dawns on us the true depth of the meaning that four-letter word carries. As some of you might know, my wife and I have four daughters. You can pray for us, okay? When we were pregnant with the first, we waited till the baby was born to know the gender. Now, during the entire pregnancy, I'd hoped for a boy. I wanted a little guy that I could take with me on all my outdoor adventures of, of hiking and camping and hunting and fishing and I knew that if those traditions that I had had with my father and grandfather were going to continue, that I had to have a son. To our thankful surprise, God gave us a little girl who we named Riley. That was 14 years ago today. Or not today, this month. And Riley's now a freshman in high school. Time flies. Fast forward two years and we were pregnant with Baby number two. Now, by this time, we had a ton of girl stuff. There was a lot of pink in my house, okay? Clothes, toys, etc. And my wife and I felt in order to properly prepare, if we found out it was a boy, it would be wise for us to, to, to find the gender early. So we went to that much-anticipated um, ultrasound appointment, and found out that our second girl was on the way. Brenly, who was now 12, was born on a hot August day. She was loud. She didn't stop crying. But we loved her just the same. Fast forward again. A few more years had passed. Baby grade number three was on the way. 
And by this time, I'm not sure if it was right or wrong, but my prayers consistently had the mention of the hope for a boy. I had two girls. I knew a boy was coming. Again, I needed that male heir to carry on my last name, the outdoor traditions of the Graydon family that I had cherished so much. And by this time, our doctor, um, when we went to that, that ultrasound appointment, instead we had them put the gender in an envelope, right? Had a little reveal party with our family. And so we had the little dinner. We opened up the envelope. Can you guess it? Girl. I can honestly say there was a mixture of feelings. I was excited because I knew how to be the daddy to little girls and another girl was just going to make life easy. But I was also frustrated because I really wanted a son. I had hoped for a son. Tatum was born in June. She's now 10. And she was a perfect fit for our family. God knew what we needed. So to be honest, my wife was happy with three. She was done. But with me, I still wanted that boy. I thought for sure that if we just tried one more time, we could even out the numbers. You know, we'd have four kids, and I would finally get the son that I had hoped for. I knew that God had tested my patience, and I had hoped uh, that I passed so that God would finally desi uh, desire to give me my prayers and the Gradens would be complete. Guess what? God has a sense of humor. <laughs> Baby number four was a girl. We named her Payson, and she's seven years old right now. And I didn't know it at the time how blessed I was, but I can honestly say in the past seven years since Payson was born, God has changed my heart dramatically. You see, for me... Hoping for a boy was that common type of hope that we share. Sincere, somewhat selfish, but certainly not wrong. I had certain reasons for that hope, and I felt that they carried weight in my eyes. But what I learned is that there is more to hope. That there is so much more important things to hope for and we oftentimes put our efforts into the little things of this world that Scripture tells us aren't important, but they'll pass away. I love being the daddy of four daughters, and to tell you the truth, I've learned that I have the best of both worlds. These little girls have no problem following dad into the woods, hunting, fishing, trapping, and camping, hiking, anything outdoors, they're up for it. In fact, I had the privilege of taking daughter number two out to harvest her sixth deer last night in as many years. But yet they can look as beautiful as their mother on a Sunday morning. I love that they still want to wrestle with dad on the, on the living room floor, but then we can turn around and cuddle in front of a movie at night. And I love that someday God will give me sons. In fact, that's been the top of my prayer list quite often, that God will provide my daughters with godly men who love the Lord first and love them second, that these men will be ready to lead them, honor them, 
provide for them and love them. And you guys, I will love them as my sons. No doubt. But where does our hope lie? With the things of this world? With the things that we think about every day? With our common worries and concerns? Or does it go deeper than the things of this world? The question is that you need to ask yourself, where is your hope right now? As Andy Norris pointed out in his sermon, and as we saw in this skit, the world seems very hopeless these days. Our government's divided on many issues. Our country is carrying tensions with other countries. Our personal convictions and beliefs are always under attack, and yet we're called to hope in a world that seems so angry at everything. What is there to have hope in? That's the real question. And the answer is not clear all the time. The truth is that the story of hope began very early in Scripture. Earlier than you might expect it. And we're going to hop around here this morning. So if you've brought your Bibles, I hope you can keep up. If you can't keep up, at least just write the passages down. But I want you to see the story of hope and how long it's been a part of the gospel. So start in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. We're going to start there, and I want to read to you what happened. You see, you all know the story where, where God created the earth in seven days, and then in that process, he put a man and woman on earth, and God walked with Adam and Eve and talked with Adam and Eve. They had a personal relationship with God. Everything was good. But then came the fall. And in the form of a serpent, Scripture tells us that Satan got a hold of Eve and tempted her to do the one thing that God told her not to, which was eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the good of evil, that tree. And Eve took a bite, and she sinned, and then she brought that to her husband, and he followed, and he sinned. And God was faced with something that he knew would happen, but it wasn't good. And so in Genesis 3, verse 14, we see God talking to Satan. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. But here it comes, you guys. But he shall bruise your head. Did you catch that? The story of hope right there in that one line? He shall bruise your head. You see, God had a rescue plan from the beginning, and it would eventually be his son Jesus, but he started it right here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God didn't make a mistake. He had a plan. And in a moment of sin by Adam and Eve that changed the momentum of the universe, God offered grace and redemption for his people, hope. Something that we could be confident in. 
And you'll see as we continue on that God's people held on to that hope for many years. Let's fast forward. Let's move into the, um, excuse me, Deuteronomy, the story of Moses. Now you guys know the story of Moses. He was a man that was chosen by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. They were under bondage in, uh, under Pharaoh, and I'm sure most of you know it, but did you know that they had been in bondage for 430 years? God's people working in cruel conditions. But during this time of slavery, they had been holding on to the promise of a Savior, somebody that would rescue them. Their hope in a message that God delivered many years before sustained them through horrible conditions. And here comes Moses, chosen by God. He was strategically placed into the royal family, raised a Hebrew, but in the Egyptian royalty. And when he found out he was Hebrew, he fled into the desert, and he lived with some people called the Midianites, where he had an encounter with God on a hillside that transformationally changed his life. He knew that God had a plan for him. And so Moses went to Egypt, and he approached Pharaoh many times, and finally won the freedom of his people, and he led them into the wilderness. And it's in this wilderness that he talks here in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15. It's just one verse, and I want you to hear this. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. But it is to him you shall listen. You see, Moses knew again of the hope that was said way before his time. And he knew this would be a prophet, a man of God. But yet he goes, you need to listen to him. It's almost as Moses is saying, look, my words are okay, but his are so much better. Moses continues that message of hope, of God's rescue plan for his people Fast forward again to Micah. That's a minor prophet book in the, in the back of the Old Testament. It's small. But Micah, you'll see again his story of a hope of the Savior. It's very poetic if you read Micah. In Micah 5, verse 2, he says this. <clears throat> but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's just a... It's a um, in-depth meaning, it's a, it's a meaning of the heart that they named Bethlehem. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. You see, Micah's saying this message is not new. This story of hope is not new. This person who's coming, this story has been here for a long time. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Mary. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty, in the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. If you read the book of Micah, you'll understand that in this passage, in this book, he's telling of two things. The first is the demise in the culture that was happening then. 
You see, Israel's leadership was unjust. And the people were suffering. The world was crumbling around them. And Micah felt the need to remind them of the hope. Does it sound familiar? This also is one of the most prophetic accounts of the coming of the Savior. And this was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The hope of a Savior amidst, amidst a world that seems to be crumbling down. The Jewish people needed that. Then go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9. In this book of Isaiah, we see the coming of the Savior for the Jews, just like the other prophets. And this might be a familiar passage. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The hope and the promise of a man who might bring peace to our lives was being talked about thousands of years ago, just as we still talk about it today. Now, some of the greatest titles, titles that were given to Jesus were right here, and they were prophetic, meaning they were, they were being told before he was even born. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What awesome promises of hope. Something we can be confident in. And lastly, in the book of Zechariah, if you can turn to that, it, again, it's one of those minor prophet books. In Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, speaking of the Hebrew nation. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. There's our hope. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a full of the donkey. In this passage, we see Zechariah, a great prophet of God, not only predict the birth of a Savior, but also the event that would lead him just a few days later to death on the cross. So we're back to the word hope. You can see what that word meant for God's people over all those years. They received that. They lived by it. And they continued to teach it upon generation upon generation. But what does hope mean for you and I? What do we hope for every day? Remember the definition? To expect with confidence? If I were to describe to you the things that I hope for every day, I would say the following are pretty high on my list at the beginning of each day. You see, I wake up and I hope that my family will have a good morning. Let's start there, a good morning, that each girl gets up, gets their time in the shower and time before the mirror, that they're all kinds of nice to each other that morning, and we don't have any emotional breakdowns. 
I hope for that. But is it hope with confidence? I hope that my, f- my family will, um, excuse me, I hope that my girls will get to school on time in the morning and that their day would be happy, that it would be full of fun time with friends and learning and making the right decisions. But do I hope with confidence in that? I hope that my wife will have a good day in her job that she feels like she's getting her never-ending list of tasks and duties done, and that I might get a chance to steal a hug and a kiss from her sometime during the day. That's the bonus of working with your wife, by the way. But do I hope with confidence? Personally, I hope that God would give me a stress-free day with tasks that wouldn't be too great to handle, that I might be useful to whomever needs me, and that I wouldn't screw anything up at work or at home. That's my personal hope for me, but do I expect that in confidence? I generally hope that the world might have a peaceful day, although I know it's almost impossible. I also hope that the world, my children, and someday my grandchildren, and someday my great-grandchildren Um, that they might live in would be better than the one we have now. But again, do I hope in confidence? So I find myself hoping for something that I know probably won't happen. I hope and I expect, but I lack the confidence. You guys, that's not hope. That's a wish. To want something that you have seen not come true over and over again. There's very little joy in having hope in that. I want to see the world turn for better, but I know the chances are high that it won't. It's kind of an oxymoron. What a horrible experience to think about. To have hope with doubt. But I am confident that we can find hope in Jesus. It's dependable. It's reliable. It's true. Scripture has been proved over and over and over again. My experience with Jesus has been proved over and over again. It's undeniable in my life what God has done for me. I can hope in that. I can expect with confidence. It's simple to say, yet hard to do. Just as it was in the skit we saw, it's possible to see the good in the world when oftentimes it seems quite dark and harsh. We just have to train ourselves to see it. I feel too often we get caught up in the practices of a sinful world and we lose hope. We forget the promise of a Savior. We forget that we're forgiven if we accept that He died for us. And we forget that God still loves us no matter how much or what we've done. We're forgiven. It's wiped clean. Scripture says it's forgotten. And as a result, we live in a world 
of crud and dire that we voluntarily carry with us. But if we could just see through that, if we could see the glass half full instead of half empty and notice all that God is doing as a result of His promise for you and I, I'm sure our lives would be very different. Last month when I preached, I brought up mention of a friend of mine named Oscar from Dayton. He's 87 years old. He's truly an authentic man in Christ, and he lives his days for Jesus wholeheartedly. About two weeks ago, Oscar came by our office again in the afternoon, and I greeted him with a hug and a handshake and a cup of coffee. I gave him a muffin that my wife had brought down to the office that day, and we sat and began to talk. I said, Oscar, why stopping by the office today? He said, the house was too quiet. Oscar lost his wife about seven years ago. He said, it was just too quiet today. Most days I can handle it. It was too quiet, so I wanted to come see my friends. And he came to camp. I told him in our conversation, I said, hey, Oscar, I, I shared your story about the eyeglass store. Maybe some of you remember the, the eyeglass store where Oscar went to get glasses. And by the time that he left, he had the opportunity to lead three women there to an understanding of the gospel. And he had the privilege of praying with them while they were working to receive Jesus into their heart. I said, I shared that story to the congregation. And he just smiled at me and he says, I got another one for you. He says, you're going to love it. And that's honestly quite common with Oscar. Oscar proceeded to tell me that just the week before he was in Fort Dodge running some errands. And he was coming down the street and this lady ran a stop sign came and broadsided him and forced him up onto the curb and damaged his car as well as hers, and they were both parked up on the grass. And he said, Ryan, it just happened so fast, I wasn't sure what happened. He said, I tried to open my door, and it was hard to open. I finally got it open. He said, but wouldn't you believe when I stepped foot on the ground, God gave me total peace. He said that, the, the feeling of just anger that I had in the car when I stepped out, it was gone. And he said, I looked at that little lady that had just hit me, and I could see that she was prepared to receive a verbal beating from the man that she just hit. And he knew that it was God's moment. Oscar walked up to this lady. He smiled at her. And he said this. Do you know Jesus? She was quite taken back. But Oscar knew that he could use this situation for something better. And in a matter of 10-minute conversation, they were both crying, holding hands, as Oscar led her in a prayer to receive Christ as her Savior. He said he gave her a hug, parted ways, and went home. I said, what happened to the car? He goes, it's just a car. He said, I brought it home. I bented it back. It's, it's fine. He said, but she has hope. I was amazed. Because it seems like anywhere Oscar goes, God opens a door for Oscar to share God's story with somebody. But I realized that I think God does that for all of us. We just don't take the opportunity like Oscar. 
As he and I continued to talk and share stories back and forth, I reminded Oscar how cool it was that God continues to give him these stories and that they consistently encourage me. And he said, Ryan, I don't do this for recognition. He said, I'm not keeping a tally. I don't want to brag about it. He said, I just wake up every morning and I ask the good Lord to use me where he needs me. And if he's done with me, take me home. He said, my work's not done. Oscar said, people need hope. And God gives that through his son, Jesus Christ. He looked at me, you guys, and he said this, if we don't have that, what do we have? There's no answer. He said, I didn't have hope B.C. Now, when Oscar talks, when he says B.C., it means before Christ. He said, I didn't have hope B.C., and I know Oscar's stories of B.C. He was a rough guy. He said, but when I gave my life to Jesus and understood what it meant to be born again, understood what it meant to be leaving my sins behind, understood what it meant to be forgiven no matter what I have done, he said, I had hope and it drastically changed my life and I want others to know that. To expect something in confidence. Oscar knows he will be with his Savior someday. He has hope. He's confident in that. The story of hope began thousands of years ago when a baby was prophesized. 2,000 years ago, he was born. 30-some years after that, he died willingly on a cross, beaten, bruised, but willingly for us so that you and I could have hope, confidence in an eternity with him. Let's live in that hope today so others might know that too. Let's pray. God, it's a, it's a busy season with so much going on. And the excitement of Christmas oftentimes takes priority. God, I'm asking that as we celebrate Advent and the expectation of your birth and, and what you did for us, Father, that we remember we can have hope, confidence in your story, confidence in your rescue plan. And with that, Father, may that overflow to the people around us. May they know Jesus because of the story of hope you started so many years ago. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing and what you promise to do. In Jesus' name, amen.